Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called patreon.com slash BP show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show, patreon.com slash BP show. you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Donald Trump's message to immigrants. Hey, if you don't already speak English, have a college degree, and make a lot of money, get out of here. We don't want you. <laughs> Turning immigration upside down. Hello, everybody. What do you say? Great to see you today. It is the Bill Press Show, indeed, on a Thursday, Thursday, August 3rd, right in the middle of summer. Hope you're having a good one and uh, are off to a good day. You're certainly off to a good day by starting with us because uh, before this show is over, you will know everything you need to know about the news of the day, not only what's going on, but what it all means. Uh, and you tell us what you think about events of the day. The Bill Press Show on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, and of course on Free Speech TV. Uh, and we look forward to hearing from you uh, on Twitter at BP Show. Top stories of the day President uh, Trump living in his own little uh, wonderland, his magic land, his phantom land at the White House, talking about phone calls that people say never really existed, never really happened. But yeah, Donald Trump got those phone calls. Uh, from outer space, who knows? Uh, he did sign the first major piece of his uh, presidency, a, a, a bill yesterday, but he did it in secret because he didn't like it and he didn't want to have to sign it. He also announced his support, yes, for an immigration bill that will change 200 years of American and more of American immigrant history. We are no longer the welcoming nation that we have been for this long, and uh, we might as well tear down the Statue of Liberty because it no longer stands for what millions and millions of people around the world have seen it standing for. We'll get into all of that with our guest today, but first... This is the Full Court Press. All right, Peter. All right. Just a couple of other stories making news. We go to the White House, where yesterday Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders started out her press briefing by reading a letter. She read a letter from yeah, a, I, I'm sick of this already, right? I'm so this is the second, done with this. The second letter. I mean, come on. Does she think we are school children? Well, let, me, let, me, let me explain what she says. She came out and she said that the White House had received a letter from a 10-year-old boy named Frank who lives in Falls Church, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. And he'd been mowing his neighbor's lawns 
And he said in the letter, quote, it would be my honor to mow the White House lawn lawn for some weekend for you. Even though I'm only 10, I'd like to show the nation what young people like me are ready for, end quote. This is what Sarah Huckabee Sanders decided to start her uh, press briefing with yesterday. Mm -hmm. First of all, parents, do a better job raising your children. They should not be offering to go mow the White House lawn especially for yeah. Donald Trump. You know, our friends Dave Jamison and Arthur Delaney at Huffington Post uh, made a good point yesterday saying this child is offering free labor and he's undercutting union workers, so he is a scab. Yeah, there you go. Screw this kid. Yeah, the White House is 18 acres. Yeah. The property is 18 acres, all right? You know, but uh, seriously. Put this little this, torp out there and make it This idea the that the press briefing has now turned into uh, a little show where Sarah Sanders can be cute by reading letters that they get from school children. Dear leader, we love you so much, and mm-hmm. we want to mow your mm-hmm. lawn. Mm-hmm. Do, they, do they still do the Skype seats? You know what? Because uh, that was like the first done, big gimmick. She hasn't done them. That was a gimmick. Yeah. Yeah, no, I haven't, uh, I haven't seen she has, Lars Larson. Uh, I, I was there the last time Sean Spicer did a couple. Uh, all right, so Donald Trump goes to a lot of golf clubs, specifically his golf no, clubs. No, he doesn't. He goes to his, his golf, golf clubs. <laughs> He's going to be going to uh, his golf club in New Jersey this month, and the Secret <laughs> Service said— This weekend. This weekend. Uh, the Secret Service has said that they are going to try out some new technology. They are going to deploy a small drone to help with protection while Donald Trump is at his club in New Jersey. Uh, out there, know how much you love drones. Uh, yeah, is this drone going to be armed with missiles? <laughs> I wish to shoot at protesters. <laughs> no, no, never. No, 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 on your radio, on TV, and online. This is the Bill Press Show. All right, uh, Donald Trump, not a happy camper today. The Quinnipiac poll shows his approval rating at an all-time low. We're now down to 33%. Pretty soon we're going to be in Chris Christie territory. Hello, everybody. What do you say? The Bill Press Show, Thursday, August 3rd. Hello, hello, hello. Great to see you today. Uh, Right here in the middle of summer. Uh, we're coming to you from Washington, D.C., where it is uh, baking uh, every single day. Uh, and that's what we're used to in July and August in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, so we shouldn't complain, but we do anyhow. I uh, hope you're having a good day and a good week and a good summer wherever you happen to be. And thank you for making the Bill Press your start to the day this day nationwide, coast to coast on YouTube, youtube.com slash uh, the Bill Press Show on Free Speech TV. Hello, hello, out there uh, on Direct TV and Chicago. Hello, you're looking good today on WCPT. Don't forget, check out our podcast every day. The podcast at uh, BillPressShow.com or iTunes, wherever you find your podcast, you'll find us there. And special little treats for you waiting on Patreon. Patreon.com. What's the latest, Peter? Uh, we still have our interview up with Ann Hornaday, <laughs> new movie critic from the uh, Washington Post. Got to watch that. She's really, so really good. good. Yeah. It's really, really good. And it's not just a lot of movie talk. She gets into the politics of what she does, too, because movies are political. Uh, and also, every single day, every single day that you're here, we put up the parting shot, which is your commentary on the news of the day, uh, that you can get in video form only on Patreon. So go check it out. 
Yes, indeed. Uh, where do we start today? Let's start with those polls I mentioned right there at the very top. Yes, and we told you uh, a couple of days ago uh, some bad news for Donald Trump, poll-wise, approval-wise, wise, because while the uh, most of the polls, the average, has been pretty low, uh, the Rasmussen poll has been the lifesaver for him. He quotes it all the time. This is the one he said that's got, you know, 40 percent, 42, 45 percent. Not, that's not bad at this time. Actually, it is bad. Uh, but that was Rasmussen, which was a notch above all the other polls. Well, the Rasmussen poll showed him this week, a couple of days ago, at 38 percent approval rating. Uh, as if that's not bad enough. Quinnipiac out yesterday with the latest, and the latest is the lowest of any poll that we've seen so far. Uh, do you approve of the job Donald Trump is doing as president? 33 which, of course, Donald Trump will call fake news. But what that really shows is, pardon me, it is the lowest of any president in 75 years at least. It's not good. Uh, not good. Uh, but it also shows that, and, and this, is, this is important and significant, that Donald Trump's base is eroding. Because when people have always said on the, on the, at the 40 level or so, they always say, well, that's his base, you know, and he's holding on to his base. His base is staying with him no matter what crazy things he says or does. 33% means even among his base now people are saying, oh, my God, <laughs> what did we do? What did we do to ourselves? What did we do to this country? Um, we'll see how the White House reacts to that, uh, to that today. Uh, and I think that base will even further shrink after what we saw yesterday at the White House when it comes to immigration. Now, look, we know this is something that Donald Trump made the centerpiece of his campaign on immigration. He was going to crack down on illegal immigration by building that wall. Of course, he hasn't done. Uh, and uh, that oh, it's going to be a beautiful wall, by the way, with solar panels on top. Right. And uh, this is a wall that nobody could ever get over or under a wall, unlike any wall that's ever built in the history of humankind, um, because Donald Trump's going to build it. It's going to be beautiful on this side, ugly on the other side. But as ugly as it is, uh, Mexico is still going to pay for it. So we got that whole tra-la-la on illegal immigration. But Donald Trump, during the campaign, didn't get as much attention, also talked about legal immigration yesterday. He stepped up uh, endorsing a bill. And, and by the way, let's say right away, this did not happen yesterday in the sense that Donald Trump did not change anything yesterday. Announcing his support for a bill put in by two Republican senators is a long way from getting that bill passed by Congress because this is an idea that's been around for a long time, even a lot of Republicans don't support it for very good reason. So all this was was a little press uh, opportunity yesterday, uh, a little photo op yesterday. But still, it is bad news for the president of the United States to endorse such a measure. They call it the RAISE Act. Um, I don't even know what RAISE stands for, R-A-I-S-E. Uh, we'll figure that out. Uh, but the president, at any rate, announcing this is going to be, this is the best idea on immigration ever. The RAISE Act will reduce poverty, increase wages, and save taxpayers billions and billions, billions. of dollars. 
billions. It will do this by changing the way the United States issues green cards to nationals from other countries. Uh, and that's, uh, that's uh, he's just reading off the teleprompter there. Uh, and he said, of course, this is going to help make America great again. This legislation demonstrates our compassion for struggling American families who deserve an immigration system that puts their needs first and that puts America first. So here's what the bill would do. First of all, this does deal with legal immigration. <coughs> Pardon me. Not illegal immigration. This, this, is, uh, this has to do with green cards. Uh, green cards that people get, which means they have a permit to come into the United States uh, and get a job and stay here and then apply for citizenship. We give out a million green cards a year. What this legislation says is that from now on, we're not just going to open our doors and say, hey, if you're interested around the world, anywhere in the world, and you want to be part of this great country of ours and help build it and make it an even better country, uh, like most of our ancestors did, right? We are a nation of immigrants. Mine came from Eastern Europe. I don't know where yours came from. Uh, but like all those millions and millions of people who applied, who lined up, who came here with nothing in their pockets but had a dream of a better life for themselves and for their family and being part of this American dream, uh, that's been the tradition of the United States. Donald Trump says, nope, we're going to change that. From now on, we're only going to give green cards to people with merit, to people who deserve them. We're going to have a merit-based green card system. And what we're going to be looking for from now on are we want people who already speak English before they get here. We want people who have some level of education, college degree, or some set of skills already before they come here. And we don't want any low-wage people. We don't, even, we, want a, we don't want any poor people, right? We want people who are making good money, big wages. We want more billionaires and millionaires. Billions and billions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what we want, right. And that's going to be the test. And those people get in. And the rest of the people stay home. We don't want you. You don't come here. It turns everything that the United States has ever stood for on its head. I, you know, and, and, and think about it. Think about, again, the millions of people who came here. Yes, some from Ireland. They did speak English or from the U.K. spoke English. But the people came here from Eastern Europe. People came here from Asia. People came here from Latin America. People have come here and have built this country. I was thinking of a friend of mine yesterday. Because we were talking about this on CNN, and as soon as I got off the air, I had a text from him from California. He's 87 years old. He grew up in Serbia. He came here. He, he was part of the Yugoslav bicycling team under Tito, and he defected, and he made his way to Holland, for, to Netherlands first, and then to the United States. He came here with his wife and two little babies and $20 in his pocket and a cardboard suitcase, and he went on to build a great pharmaceutical company, sold that, 
and build a second great pharmaceutical company, employing thousands and thousands and thousands of Americans. He would never have been allowed in this country under Donald Trump's plan. And that's true with millions of people. All those people who, who have come here are most of our ancestors. This is just, this is the most elitist, un-American form of immigration or, or approach to immigration I, I, I can imagine. It's cruel, it's elitist, and it's un-American. It's horrible. It's horrible. And you hit on the most important point that this is <laughs> that this goes against everything that we have ever done as Americans, right? That what we stand for as Americans. But not not as important of a point, but still I think worth pointing out. This turns on its head everything that Republicans have publicly stood for over the years. When we talk about immigration reform and we talk about fixing the immigration problem, Republicans always point to Mexico. Right. Like Mexico is the, to them, that is the yeah. only immigration problem. And they want yeah. Yeah. a better system for that. And like, OK, whatever. Right. Like, I, I'm not one of these people that believes we have this huge immigration problem coming from Mexico. But if that's what you believe, we could work with that. Right. But this blows that out of the water completely. This is not the same argument they've been having. The Republicans no. this whole time have been saying, like, look, if you well, want to come here, there's a way to do it. And the way to do it is not what Donald Trump is suggesting in this new uh, in, in this new immigration plan. Yeah, no, it's completely so, different. It, it, it's almost like his approach to everything else. That if you need help, we're not interested in you. If you don't need any help, if you're already if you already yeah. got it made, we'll take care of you. That's his approach to tax cuts. That's his approach to the health care bill. That's his approach to immigration. So then he sends out to the briefing yesterday in the biggest insult I think the press corps has ever had. Uh, his top his top advisor Stephen Miller uh, on and and the man uh, in who the looks pretty good for a guy who's been dead for three days. He's, he My looks God. like a vampire. Oh, this guy. God, it was hard to hard to watch yesterday. Uh, so it's first got of a all, phallic nature to him. Yeah, yeah, he does. He goes, <laughs> yeah, he goes first of all after uh, he 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 lays out. Here's what we're going to be looking for uh, in people who get a green card. All right. And we'll look at, does the applicant speak English? Can they support themselves and their families financially? Do they have a skill that will add to the U.S. economy? Are they being paid a high wage? Well, oh, okay. So that's what the bill does. Now, the first person to challenge him a little bit on that was Glenn Thrush of the New York Times, who says, you know, you say uh, that low, here's the argument they made. Let's take a minute there. Their, their argument is that this bill is going to help American workers because the low-income people coming in are taking jobs away from Americans, those who are, 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 not make, who are poor or getting low wages. They're the ones taking jobs away from Americans. So follow this logic if you can. I can't. But the people who have higher wages and higher skills are not going to be taking jobs from Americans. Again, it's just the opposite. The low-wage people coming in, and most of them are working in our fields, right? Or maybe uh, washing dishes in restaurants, or maybe changing the beds in hotels, right? They're not taking jobs, particularly the field workers. They're not taking jobs away from Americans. They are taking jobs that Americans won't do and don't want to do. It's been proven over and over and over again in study after study. Senator Dianne Feinstein made this point yesterday. This whole idea, right, that the low-wage people are the threat to American workers is total nonsense. 
We employ tens of thousands of agricultural workers. They are among the class that this would be prohibited. It would cripple agriculture if they didn't have the uh, people coming in to do this work. And what we have found is Americans will not do this kind of stoop labor in 100 degrees temperature. So that's that, so they're wrong on what they on what, on what they claim, right? End of story. But so then Glenn Thrush says, show, give us a, a, some study, give us some numbers that really prove your point that low wage people are a threat to American workers. And Stephen Miller gets personal with Glenn Thrush and the New York Times. I asked you for a statistic. Can you tell Glenn, me how many? The, how maybe many? we'll make a carve out in the bill yeah. that says the New York Times can hire all the low skilled, less paid workers they want from other countries and see how you feel then about low wage substitution. The smart ass. Yeah. Total jackass. So then Jim Acosta from CNN says, you know, this uh, idea that you have to speak English before you get here is not really what the Statue of Liberty is all about. The Statue of Liberty says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free. doesn't say anything about speaking English or being able to uh, be a computer programmer. Uh, aren't you trying to change what it means to be an immigrant coming into this country if, if you're telling them uh, you have to speak English? Uh, can't people learn how to speak English when they get here? Well, first of all, right now, it's a requirement that to be naturalized, you had to speak English. So the notion that... Yeah, but that's five years down English the road, dude. systems would be actually right? very ahistorical. That's, that's, just, that's just BS. Total BS. That's not an entrance requirement now. No, that's if that's to get your citizenship, of course. By the way, that's what the first thing immigrants want to do is learn to speak English, right? So then he goes after uh, Jim Acosta and on and on and on saying how shocked he is that Jim would think that immigrants coming here don't already speak English. I am shocked, shocked at your statement that you think that only people from Great Britain and Australia would know English. It's actually, it reveals your cosmopolitan uh, bias to a shocking degree oh, that in your mind, no, this, is an amazing, this is an amazing moment. This I is an amazing moment that you think only people from Great Britain or Australia would speak English. You know it's what? so insulting. I got it, 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 it's so great. He just argues anything but the actual point. No, yeah, he's like, not. He's not arguing the point at all. I, I got to tell you, it's a good thing I wasn't there at the White House. Oh yesterday. my God! I would have been thrown out <laughs> because I would not have sat there like everybody else did and taken that yeah. crap. I yeah. am shocked. 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 I declare, <laughs> how dare you say such a thing here in this White House? <laughs> yeah. Seriously. This is a perfect time for your Beauregard boys. I know, it is. <laughs> Where's my fainting couch? I believe I may have caught the vapors. That in your mind, no, this is an amazing This, this is, an, is amazing an amazing moment. moment. Why don't I tell you? Where did this guy come from? Yeah. A succubus from hell. That's who he is. I'm telling you. Right. Hey, no, by the way, really. And, and you know what? I'll tell you. You know why he got personal with Glenn Thrush and with uh, Jim Acosta? Because he can't defend the freaking policy. Yeah. He cannot defend it. It yeah. is wrong. It is immoral, uh, and it's un-American, and it doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. The real threat to American jobs are these high-skilled people with the HB1 visas, for example, and some green cards, who come in and take the jobs in the tech industry that our young people don't get. Yeah. You ask anybody in the tech industry, and you ask anybody in California, they're the ones who are, who are comp- competitors for the high-paying jobs. Yeah. It's not the field workers. <laughs> That's right. Uh, by the way, we're on Twitter. 
at BP Show, at BP Show. we got a couple of comments. Uh, Paul Summers points out, uh, I take it, talking about Trump, I take it his hiring of foreign workers for his Florida golf course would be uh, an exception. By the way, that is an excellent point. Somebody did raise that yesterday, uh, asking, does this mean that Donald Trump is going to change his hiring policies at Mar-a-Lago and Bedminster? And uh, Stephen Miller says, how dare you ask that question? Why? Uh, because we're talking about green cards, right? We don't want to talk about a, 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 a what Donald Trump is doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. No, look, that's a real legitimate issue. It's no? just like made in America, buy in America, except for Donald Trump and Ivanka Trump products. Yeah. Excellent point. Uh, one other quick comment. For our buddy Igor Volsky was tweeting about this uh, yesterday. He says, as an immigrant who came to America at the age of seven, I want to take a moment to review the crazy racist immigration policy Trump just endorsed. And he went there. He called it yeah. uh, racist. He says that Latinos and Asians, Africans, refugees will all be severely impacted by this. Uh, Irish and Italians whose family came here in earlier waves will not be impacted. To be clear, if you su- this is Igor's tweet. To be clear, if you support a policy that you know will disproportionately impact people of color and keep them out of the United States, you are a racist yeah and that's what this policy is yeah absolutely um we'll see how far that goes i don't think it's going to go very far but just the idea that donald trump was for it tells you everything all you need to know about who donald trump really is uh by the way uh donald trump is also a man who makes things up (laughs) and who says things there's that right (laughs) like he said oh man you told the wall street journal uh, my Boy Scout, there was no mixed reception there. Everybody loved me. In fact, he said, I got a call from the head, head of the Boy Scouts, the head of the Boy Scouts, who told me it was the greatest speech ever delivered at any Scout gathering. And yesterday, uh, day before yesterday, when he uh, had his first cabinet meeting and was talking about with John, it was when they swore in uh, John Kelly as the new chief of staff, actually. And he was bragging about all the things he's accomplished in the first six months. Uh, Donald Trump said, I got a call from President uh, uh, of Mexico, President Pena, who told me that there are, are congratulated me on the great job we've done about uh, stopping the flow of uh, people coming in across the southern border, uh, the president of Mexico. Well, the Boy Scouts put out a statement saying, uh, we never made that call. The president of the Boy Scouts said, I never made that call. The chief executive of the Boy Scouts said, no, nobody ever made that call. In fact, remember, they put out a statement apologizing for the president's speech and disassociating themselves from anything that he said. Uh, And the government of Mexico yesterday said uh, the president of Mexico never called Donald Trump to congratulate him on his uh, border wall. Uh, Where those calls come from? Who knows? Who knows? Sarah Sanders yesterday at the briefing trying to make the point, um, well, yeah, they had those conversations, but uh, yeah, well, it just wasn't a phone call. That's all. I, I wouldn't say it was a lie. It was, uh, that's pretty <laughs> bold accusation. Oh, it's oh, a, oh. The Is it conversa- though? The conversations took place. They just simply didn't take place over a phone call that he had them in person. Well, did they? Well, according to the Boy Scouts and the government of Mexico, no, the conversations Never even took place. But Donald Trump said they were phone calls. Okay. Now, I know what you could say, right? Hey, what? You know, it's just a little phone call. Don't we all exaggerate from time to time? No, 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 no. The problem is this speaks to the credibility of the president of the United States. 
You know, credibility is the coin of the realm. Uh, and if you can't believe the president about the little things, like a phone call, what the hell can you believe him about? I, I, I was reminded yesterday, first of all, the Boy Scouts, right? Boy Scout oath. I was a Boy Scout. What's the first word? A Boy Scout is trustworthy. Yeah, the Boy Scouts are trustworthy. The President of the United States is not. Not even close. Uh, and remember what Steve Colbert said during the campaign was the big issue? Truthiness, yeah. right? There ain't no truthiness in the in the Trump administration. So here you go. This is a president who lied about the size of the crowd at his inauguration, who lied about Barack Obama tapping his phones at Trump Tower, who lied about Hillary Clinton getting three to five million votes, who lied about busing voters from Massachusetts to New Hampshire, who lied about the fact that there was never any single meeting between anybody in his administration and anybody from Russia, who lied about the fact that Donald Trump Jr. held a meeting where they talked only about adoptions and not about the election. And now here's a Donald Trump who lied about, I mean, that list, by the way, we don't have enough time to go through that list of the lies that we can remember. And now add two more, two phone calls that he's lied about. It's just when you put that in the context, this is this is this is really serious matter. Look, you can't I, believe a word he says. I don't want to go back and relitigate the whole issue from day one, where they came out and talked about the crowd size of the inauguration. But if you will lie about that, what won't you lie about? Right. If you yeah. lie about a speech to the Boy Scouts or a phone call you got from the Boy Scouts, what won't you lie about? If you lie about working on uh, 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 doctoring a statement for your dumb, fail son, what won't you lie about? Period. He'll lie about anything. Yeah. He'll no. lie about anything. Even, yeah, even a phone call. But, I think, you know, and again, this may be something that, like, other people might do. You're out for a beer with some friends. You say, oh, man, I got a call from, well, know, whatever. Sure. He's the president of the United States, right? right? And he's talking about a call from the president of Mexico. One final little point. Uh, Donald Trump did uh, uh, mention yesterday that uh, with the the market, the Dow, um, going gangbusters. The stock market hit an all-time record high today, over 22,000. We've picked up substantially now more than $4 trillion in net worth in terms of our country, our stocks, our companies. Now, it is true that Dow did go up over 22000 yesterday. And if you're lucky enough to have any um, uh, anything in your portfolio, have a portfolio, <laughs> have any stocks in your portfolio, uh, good for you. Uh, I just want to put that in context as well. Not taking anything away from Donald Trump. I just think it's important that we all recognize and that you all know that actually the Dow has hit a new high at, on the av- on average Every seven days since March of 2013, every seven days, the March, the Dow is at a new high. So the Trump-Obama bump. Yes. Yes, right. That's what it should be called. Uh, the Dow has hit a new high for th- in 30 of the last 54 months, and the Dow hit a new high more than 100 times under President Obama since 2013. Billions so, and billions. This billions is, and billions. This is another case of Donald Trump riding the Obama bump. Thanks, Obama. And taking credit for it. Thanks, uh, Obama.
I have to uh, go back to an earlier. I, I have to issue a correction because I did screw up, uh, and I'm very sorry about this. I said Stephen Miller was a succubus. Oh. Uh, my man Romaine yeah. pointed out that succubus are female. He is technically an incubus, oh. not a succubus. Oh. Uh, we regret the <laughs> error. Shout out Romaine. Shout out my man Romaine. Uh, okay. <laughs> now, is it safe to fly? Is it comfortable to fly? Or is it safe or comfortable to even work in uh, today's air- uh, on today's airlines? We're going to find out. That and a lot more from the president of the Flight Attendants Association, Sarah Nelson, joining us here in studio. Coming up next on the Bill Press Show. Lots of questions for you. Stay with us. It reveals your cosmopolitan uh, 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 bias. Download our podcast. Search for the Bill Press Show on iTunes. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is the Bill Press Show. Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Here we go on a Wednesday. No, that was yesterday. Thursday. Let's make it Thursday, August 3rd. They all just run into each other. I know. I have a hard time with the month or the day or whatever the time of day. Um, It is The Bill Press Show. Good to see you today. Thanks for joining us coast to coast as we come to you live uh, from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., I'm brought to you today by the International Association of Firefighters, the good men and women of our firefighting departments on the front lines every single day protecting American families. We count on them. They never let us down. Uh, their great work under President Harold Schaitberger, we uh, salute them and uh, thank them for the support of the program. You can check out their good work at their website, IAFF.org. Speaking of a proud union member, joining us in studio this morning very pleased and honored to welcome Sarah Nelson, who's the president, international president of the Association of Flight Attendants. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me here. All right. You work for what airline? Uh, I'm a United Airlines flight attendant, 21 years. Uh, but this Still is Still on active duty? With... I, I am active. I'm, I'm uh, but... current and uh, up to date and can pick up a trip. But uh, this is full-time work, uh, representing 50,000 flight attendants at 20 different airlines. So um, I, I tell you this, not just because you're sitting here, but I am a United, you know, I don't know, over a million miles and whatever category I am. Uh, and I always try to fly United because I do like the airline uh, and, and, and the service. But, but United had a rough road this year. How's that? Is it kind of recovering from that? incident where this doctor was dragged off the plane? You know, United has had a rough road, but um, I think that that is a symptom of uh, the poor management that was run out of office. Of course, uh, you may remember uh, almost two years ago now, uh, the CEO, Jeff Smysick, left in shame under investigation in connection to the uh, Chris Christie Bridgegate issues. Oh, right. And, right. <laughs> and so we, we couldn't have been in a worse shape at United Airlines. So the, the new management um, came in, finished all the labor agreements, worked with us. Uh, we had been languishing in negotiations for uh, for years, and that merger had not been completed. Um, but we got that done in four months uh, with the new CEO. 
And I think, you know, they're they're having to clean up a lot of things that were wrong at United. Uh, but that is all getting better. It's ironic that this happened this spring yeah. as United is actually climbing its way out. And people in the people on the front lines are feeling very good about their airline today. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was an incident where there was a, a, a total meltdown of uh, epic proportions uh, based on a whole series of events there. We had all kids on the plane. Uh, We had a security come that is not trained as law enforcement that made a bad decision there. We had employees on the front lines who didn't feel empowered to step up and step in and Uh, But, you know, I mean, I think that in some ways, actually, what this has done is it's gotten United very focused on Mm -hmm. uh, dealing with these issues in the operation. And and I think that um, I think that the airline is really turning around even more than before. Well, I should say I fly a lot. And I have to tell you, I have a huge, huge appreciation for the job that you flight attendants do. I mean, uh, sometimes I'm just amazed at what you have to put up with. And lately. So congratulations and thank you. Lately, there's been a lot of incidents of people just, you know, going, going nuts. I mean, what do you call it? Air rage or something? Uh, you're seeing more and more examples of that. What's going on? What do you attribute it to? Well, (laughs) air rage is an issue that we've had to deal with for a long time now. And we were we were adamant that we get some additional penalties and uh, fees in place for passengers who are acting out because they can put an entire plane in jeopardy and or at the very least inconvenience an entire plane of uh, people and all the people who are waiting that for that plane at the next destination. So in 2003, we actually got the FAA to increase the fines and penalties, and we've had a lot of reporting on that. And so the air rage incidents actually were down this last year in the U.S. While well, they've been on the rise internationally, mm. you're probably mm. surprised to hear that. I am. I am. Um, yeah. And and so we think that that has served as a good deterrent. But that doesn't address the fact that all of the airlines after September 11th uh, went through a series of bankruptcies. Um, they tried to figure out how to make money. And in a lot of cases, that was off the backs of the employees. We had a 30 to 40 percent cut in pay. Uh, we had a 20, 25 percent cut in our workforce. Staffing was cut down to minimum, so there was further cut in the workforce. People are working 25 to 50 percent more than they were before, and they lost their pensions. Uh, so on our backs, on the employees' backs, on the front lines, we helped turn this around. So if you can imagine, on these planes now, flight attendants are down to minimum staffing. Uh, then through the mergers, of course, the airlines consolidated all that capacity in the industry and tried to make yeah. money by eking out every bit of revenue they can for every seat that they're flying. So our airplanes are fuller than ever, Bill. Uh, uh, tell me about <laughs> it. Yeah. No. And yeah. in addition to that, the seats are smaller. There's an effort to pack more seats onto the plane. Oh, yeah. And, and this all, you know, uh, security is important. Safety and security have to be our number one. But what that means is that when people are getting to the airport, they're stripping down, they're going through security, they're feeling like, you know, their personal space is being invaded. And then, you know, there may be all kinds of things that go wrong with air travel that can be very frustrating. And you're jamming in all of humanity into a small space together. It's like the American experience is playing out on our planes. Mm-hmm. Um, I will tell you, too, that, um, you know, these are all frustrating factors that we have to deal with us, and there's fewer flight attendants to deal with them. But we've also seen a change in attitude with the national discourse in the past year. And there has been a general uh, lack for, of respect for authority. Uh, there has been just a, a, um, a heightened um, anger and uh, a, a greater uh, likelihood that people are going to actually act on that in the way that they treat others. 
And and so we're seeing that there, you know, the political environment here and the discussion nationally um, and the the sort of uh, lack of leadership um, coming from the White House, um, and that's saying it kindly, I think, um, has uh, resulted in a different uh, climate on our planes, and that has not helped at all. Um, I will tell you, too, the other thing that hasn't helped is everyone carrying their personal electronic device and having their heads buried in that. And there's not even an attempt when they come to our airplane door where they're, hello, welcome to our plane. And they yeah. don't even look up and say hello. <laughs> I'm the person who may save your life on this plane, but by all means, don't take a second to say hello. No, because I'm, I'm watching my phone, right? Or I've got my laptop. I do, feel, I do feel guilty, and I've stopped doing it, like during the in-flight announcements, like this is what happens in the case of an emergency. You need to know these things. Like I will take my headphones out and will like pay attention. In any well, other setting, yeah. it would be extremely rude to do something like that if you yeah. think about it. Yeah, no, it's so rude. It's so rude. <laughs> yes, and thank you. Thank you for that. And um, you're a star passenger. Hey, thank and you. <laughs> Can I get little wings? Can I get like some pilot wings? That'd be so cool. <laughs> I, also, I also just want to recognize that there are actually people who come to our planes and are going out of their way to say thank you. Uh, we have reports of people all over, the, all over the place bringing little, you know, chocolates for the crews and saying, hey, we oh, know you cool. have a really hard job. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, all of this frenzy around the media has made our life very difficult because... Um, people on the planes will uh, some look like they are looking for that conflict, yep. maybe maybe to get you know a little <laughs> a free flight or something. Um, but but they're they're a few and far between. It's just that we all remember the bad experiences, right? So I do want to recognize that we carry million carry millions of people. The we carry the size of the city of Chicago every single day on Holy our planes. Cow. Think wow. about that. Wow. And, and yeah. the vast majority of people are coming to that flight uh, with kindness in their hearts, and they just want to have a safe, uneventful, efficient flight, and we thank them for that. And, and the ones who go out of their way to say thank you, we especially recognize them. But those bad experiences are the ones that stand out, aren't they? But that, yeah. well, well, they are, sad, sadly. So um, are first-class passengers bigger... Um, I, I can't use the word a-hole on the air. Um, but then people who are more in difficult. coach, more difficult than people are. So, you know, some of them, don't some of them sort of have an attitude? You know, what's interesting about it is that um, first-class passengers oftentimes today are getting an upgrade because they're a frequent flyer. And as you know, Bill, since you're a frequent flyer, mm -hmm. you know the routine. And we generally find that the people who kind of know the routine are some of our easiest passengers because, you know, they know how it's going to go. Mm -hmm. And uh, there doesn't have to be a lot of explanation there. And, and a lot of times, too, they're also the ones who recognize when something's wrong and are oftentimes the ones who are the first ones to say, hey, can I help? Well, um, yeah. Now, That's you good. know, there's a That's sense good. of entitlement by some people. Right. Um, and uh, so we do we do find that from time to time. But I'll, I'll tell you. I don't think there's really any difference on that sense of an entitlement in first class or in coach. How, how big a factor is alcohol? Uh, alcohol is a huge factor. And I will tell you that in studies uh, with the events of unruly passengers, uh, alcohol is to blame for 23% of those. Ask any flight attendant, though. The flight attendant would tell you it's more like 80 to 90 yeah. percent everywhere I go. And so I don't know that these things are, are categorized correctly. And it may be that something else is being identified as the reason. But alcohol is a problem. And it's something that we have to watch out for. And we can't always catch that at the door anymore because there's so few of us. There's uh, minimum staffing at the gate. 
minimum staffing on the airplane. We have to stay where we are and handle this boarding process. And unfortunately, there's some people who are slipping onto our planes who have been sitting there at the airport bar. Mm -hmm. Don't understand how that alcohol is going to affect them at a pressurized uh, cabin of 8,000 feet. And then, you know, act out. And we all we all have friends who uh, handle alcohol not as well as others. So, uh, uh, yeah, that's that's what happens on our plane. And it's a big problem. And right. it's, it's, it really is kind of amazing. You've got the the alcohol combined with this. Sometimes there's a sense of of extreme entitlement that people and like, look, you, you pay a lot of money to play to fly in a plane. You should you should have a good experience. But people assume that, like, this is their living room all of a sudden. And then you combine that with a small space, you know, that high up in the sky. Like, that is a recipe for at at least a big headache. You're removing those inhibitors. And, you know, all of these conditions are exactly why a few years ago we said it was a really bad idea to let knives come back on our planes. Remember that? That was was a big fight. Um, But, you know, we don't need anything else to add to the aggression on board or anybody's ability to do harm. You've referenced a couple of times to the um, cramming people in, you know, certainly in the back of the plane, the economy plus. That's how I always hit for there. But um, there's a judge this week that said that the FAA has to really take a look at what the airlines are doing in terms of, you know, consolidating that space and shoving in more and more seats. Absolutely. Flight attendants are on the front lines. We're aviation's first responders. And so we're there. We're we're the ones handling the brunt of passengers' frustrations with those incredible shrinking seats, as the judge said, right? (laughs) Right. That's what he called them. That's right. And um, we actually have been working with Congress on uh, addressing the evacuation uh, standards to address, you know, is the is what's happening in our cabins with everybody plugged in with their electronic devices, body masses getting bigger, the seats getting smaller, is that having an impact on the standards that allow these aircraft to be certified? So this judge's decision is right in line with what we have been doing with Congress to try to direct the FAA to take a, a closer it, it, look at this. Yeah, it's not just a comfort issue. It is a safety issue, Absolutely, right? it's a safety issue. If you are folded into that seat, how likely is it that in a dark cabin, uh, you know, with uh, trying to get to an exit that's at least 30 feet away in some cases, how likely is it that you're going to be able to unfold yourself from that seat in an airplane that's Mm. been in a critical incident? Uh, It's it's an issue. And, um, you know, that aircraft can burn up very quickly. And that's why we have those standards of giving everyone off in 90 seconds with half of the exits unusable um, and uh, potentially in a dark cabin that has been... um, that has been changed in the after an aircraft incident. Right. Um, we know that you, part of uh, what you're um, involved in right now is the, the you call the fight for ten. Yes. Which is what's that all about? So, in addition to flight attendants being at minimum staffing and dealing with more passengers than ever, and having a large portion of our job about de-escalating conflict on the plane, um, we also for thirty years have said we're not getting enough rest. And so there's been seven congressional fatigue studies that uh, we took part in uh, over the last couple decades. And you are going to be shocked to find out that the fatigue studies actually found that flight attendants were fatigued. And and the result was that we need more rest to address that fatigue. It was shocking that um, that those fatigue studies had that result. But um, good well, thing that Congress what are the uh, commissioned standards those. Now, or what are so the right rules now, now you can get just eight hours of rest in between a two 14-hour duty periods. 
And so what that means is from the time you're getting off the plane and going to your hotel and getting something to yeah, eat, that's not going through a normal time, course, right? that's, that's exactly right. You're talking yeah. about if lucky, if you can get yourself right to sleep, you might get five hours of sleep. It's probably less than that. Uh, so what happened a few years ago after the um, Buffalo crash, the Colgan Air crash, was that the pilot rules were changed. Mm-hmm. And part of those changes were to a minimum 10 hours rest for pilots. That was also based on the fatigue it, it studies. It should be 10-hour break, it, right, not it, rest. Well, exactly. It's a 10-hour break, break is really what right. it is. And that's yeah. the way that we should talk about it. In the airline industry, under the regulations, it's called rest. But let's be clear. It's, it's not, not all rest. rest. Right. That's right. So we are fighting to get equal rest with uh, the pilots. It's a really simple issue. We've defined the problem through these seven fatigue studies. Um, You know, I think that and, uh, you know, there's an issue of equality here, too. A mostly male workforce has got enough rest. A mostly female workforce uh, doesn't. And um, the other issue is that every other country in the world equalizes rest between the flight deck and the cabin crew. So we're lagging behind here, and and we've had this fight for 10 uh, campaign going on, and we're trying to get this rest in place. Uh, It's in the House FAA reauthorization bill, and if we actually get an FAA reauthorization bill passed, we'll get it, but we can't really wait to get this done. So we think Congress needs to act right now. Very simple. Have any of the airlines done it on their own? Uh, so we have been able to negotiate this in certain contracts. Uh, leaders on that are Alaska, uh, Horizon Air, hmm. um, who also flies for Alaska, um, and Hawaiian. Um, really? We just yeah. recently negotiated this in the United contract as well. Um, it's you know it's about safety. And uh, so we just need to lift the standard for everyone because we also know as flight attendants, having recently gone through all the bankruptcies, that you in the bankruptcy court, anything that's in your contract can be cut. If you don't have those federal minimum standards, you're in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. And there are thousands of flight attendants out there who don't have this minimum of 10 hours rest. We need to lift it. I mean, it's a bit hard. I find it hard to make an argument against it. I mean, obviously... You want the people who are flying the plane to have that minimum amount of rest and this, or break, right? Yes. And certainly the people who are working the plane. Um, it just makes all kinds of sense. Well, and I think, you know, if you expect your flight attendant to be escalating issues on the plane, you probably don't want them coming to the plane fatigued. Right. No, exactly. <laughs> Um, well, so the fight, fight for 10. But, and, and also you make the very important point. It's, it's important to have that as part of the federal regulations otherwise. You're Absolutely. going to be fighting airline to airline, and then one airline goes out of business. You have to, yeah, you've got to. Um, You know, the other issue that you hear a lot of complaints about are that, okay, um, maybe uh, the fee, the fares are not going to go up, but we're going to charge you a little bit for every single thing, including that little bag of peanuts. Uh, do you get a lot of complaints about that, and what's the reality? Well, uh, I think what's interesting is that some of the mainline carriers are starting to bring some of these items back, complimentary. Um, which is which is like a good checking sign. a bag, for example. But checking, you, checking never, a bag, you just took it for granted. You could absolutely check so, your bag and not so pay. He, now here's you do. the reality, Bill. Uh, the airlines had to figure out how to make money, and uh, we know that because we carried them on our backs for years with cuts to our own pay to make them continue to fly. So airline ticket prices, believe it or not, on an average, you know, somebody in a certain mm-hmm. city is going to say that's not true in my city, but on an average, are forty percent below what they were in 1980 if you adjust for inflation. So airline ticket prices have not increased throughout the years during this experiment of deregulation. 
Um, but uh, the airlines have figured have had to figure out how to make money. And so what they have determined is that um, the the biggest driver of buying those tickets is cost. So they're going to look for the cheapest ticket cost. When you have these ultra low cost carriers like a Frontier or a Spirit that does all this segmentation of fees, the other airlines have had to figure out how to compete with that. And that is what has driven these baggage fees. So if the airline ticket prices could all be raised a little bit to cover these fees, that would be very different. But the airlines have not found how to raise the ticket prices and be able to compete with some of these other airlines who are doing the segmented costs. And so this is the reality of where we are today in order to um, make money. So it's probably not going to change. I I don't see that changing. Um, It seems that the industry has really moved to those fees. And the the behavior of passengers, I feel strange talking about this as a union representative, but the behavior of passengers in buying these tickets has shown that people are willing to take this on. Because if I am someone who's willing to just travel with my backpack and I've got all I need, why should I pay to check someone else's bag? I want to just pay for my ticket price and not have to pay for that portion of travel. But if you want to travel with, you know, a couple 40-pound bags and you can't get them on board, <laughs> then uh, then you're going to pay for that in addition to your ticket. And and uh, that's the way yeah. that the industry has gone. Well, I am a no-check luggage carry-on passenger. I could go he could be it. leaving the country for three weeks, and he'll carry, like, his duffel bag with him that he can put in. It's I'm remarkable. super impressed no, with that. No, I have. I mean, that's who I am. <laughs> but I cannot believe some of the luggage that I see people show up <laughs> in the airport on. I mean, not just one roller, roller bag. Yeah. And not just like a little roller bag. I mean, you know, like mm-hmm. a trunk well, I, with wheels on it. And they'll have two of them. I want to know where they're going. And do they understand yeah. that they're just going to be carrying around a lot of dirty laundry yeah. with them for the right. rest of the trip, right? It is amazing yeah. what some of these people have. Um, uh, what impact have these there are more and more of them popping up all over the place. Uh, these, I don't know, what do you call them, low-cost or budget airlines uh, had on, on the industry, you know, uh, like Ryanair in Europe. Uh, and here, I guess it was Southwest, or still is maybe. Well, for the, so, so Ryanair is a very different model than Southwest. Southwest is actually just a, a, very, a very different model than the rest of the airline yeah. industry. Yeah, they run with the same the type of aircraft. Here. They have yeah. a lot of... Uh, they figured out how to get their costs out of the operation rather than putting it on their employees. The The model that Ryanair operates on is how can we avoid uh, any labor laws or union contracts and how oh, can totally we put the costs on right? those frontline yeah. employees? It's, it's a model that it has been attempted to bring to the U.S. This flag of convenience model is really what it is. Uh, so that they can certificate the airline in a country with the lowest labor standards. We saw this in maritime. Mm. 100,000 good-paying U.S. jobs went out of the country because flags of convenience overtook maritime, which allowed these ships to be flagged, say, in Liberia, uh, where you know there are very yeah. low yeah. labor standards. Yeah. And they can hire those crews at those low labor standards. And and let's not forget the oversight, too. So there's no oversight on these safety standards that we've been talking about all day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is something that we've been fighting against, too. And there's there's a bill in Congress right now, H.R. 2150, Flags of Convenience Don't Fly Here Act. Oh. And huh. uh, yeah. so we are promoting co-sponsors for this bill uh, because there has been an, an attempt through the Open Skies bring, agreements to bring some of these carriers from Europe or from the Middle East I over see. into the U.S. Right. and to operate under this market, under under this plan. You know, our airlines can't compete with that, and what it's going to do is undercut uh, American workers 
and ultimately force our airlines to start to think about flagging our carriers outside the U.S. too. Very quickly, we're running out of time, but I want to be sure that people can find out so much more about all these issues, Fight to 10, everything else, and how they can uh, express their support at uh, your website, which is afacwa.org, right? That's correct. We'll put a link up on our website. It might be hard to remember. afacwa.org. Final point, which I don't think we're going to emphasize enough. You mentioned this equivalent of the population of the city of Chicago flying every day, right? Yes. And yet airline travel is so safe today, isn't it? It It is the safest mode of transportation in the world, and that is because the people on the front lines have demanded it be that way. Yeah. So our, our workspace is your travel space, and through our union, we've been able to have a very strong voice for aviation safety um, in, in counterparts with the mechanics and the pilots, um, and it's really been the unions and the people on the front lines who have driven those safety issues. It really is. It's incredible how many planes up there, how many people up there every day, and as safe as it is. Thank you for the great work that you're doing. Thank you, Bill. Uh, and thank you for coming in today. Uh, your flight attendant. Hug a flight attendant today for sure. <laughs> Thanks so much, Sarah. Great thank you, you, Bill. We'll be back and talk media with Matt Gertz from this Media Matters. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And the latest approval rating for Donald Trump, according to Quinnipiac, down to 33% approval rating. We are getting into Chris Christie territory, ladies and gentlemen. Hello, what do you say? It is a Thursday, August 3rd. This is the Bill Press Show. Great to see you today. Thank you so much for joining us as we come to you live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., where Donald Trump yesterday signed the first, yes, this is August 3rd, uh, finally signed a major piece of legislation, uh, but it was a bill that he hated so much, he signed it behind closed doors, and when he signed it, he slammed it at the same time and said it was a piece of crap. He wished he didn't have to sign it, but he knew that uh, his veto would have over if he had tried to veto it, uh, the Senate and the House, both led by Republicans, would have overridden his veto. Uh, just a little symbol of uh, how how much he's accomplished and how well he's doing so far. Uh, and a rock and roll White House briefing yesterday uh, with uh, Stephen Miller on the part of the president slamming the New York Times and uh, the, and CNN and basically anybody who dared question their new immigration policy. Matt Gertz joins us from Media Matters to talk about uh, uh, the relations between the Trump administration and the, and, and, and the media and 
all kinds of other good media stories. Hello, Matt. Hey, thanks so much for nice having me. Nice to see you again. Good to see you, too. That was quite a show yesterday, huh? Quite a show. Sarah Sanders brought in the attack dog. Oh, my. I know. Well, well when you can't defend the policy, what you do is you... Attack the press. I mean, that's sort of been the strategy from the beginning here. The uh, press is not in that briefing in order to actually get information and and distribute it to the American people. They're there to be a foil for the president. They're there to be uh, sort of uh, to to provide the sort of two minutes hate, right? They get uh, they just uh, become punching bags. Uh, Exactly. That's what it's all about. So all of that coming up. And we look forward to hearing from you uh, on Twitter at BP Show. But first, this is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. You know what American people love? Uh, Well, um, peanut butter? Marijuana. (laughs) There is a new Harvard-Harris study. It's a good combination, peanut butter and 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 pot. Yeah, yeah, that's not a bad idea. (laughs) I don't know about that. You got my peanut butter in my pot. You got my pot in my pot. Trust me. There's a new... uh, (laughs) Someone who knows from experience. Didn't go well for morning dad. <laughs> no, that's right. There is a, a new Harvard-Harris survey that found uh, 49% of Americans believe that marijuana should be legalized for both medical and personal use. 49%. 37% said that it should be legalized solely for medicinal purposes, meaning that 86% of respondents support legalizing the plant in some form. of Americans say that marijuana should be illegal across the board. 14 Americans. And they all work for the Department of Justice. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They're all Jeff Sessions. That's stunning. Whoa. That's stunning. No, that really is. You know, Trump should stop paying attention to his own polls and pay attention to a poll like this. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Uh, This is kind of fascinating to me. A man by the name of Oscar Groening is a 96-year-old former Nazi guard and SS officer. He was known as the bookkeeper of Auschwitz. A court has deemed him fit to serve jail time for his 2015 conviction. must be 104. He's 96 years old. He's 96 years old. Not that that... No, I know, but the, but like his argument was, I'm 96 years old. I shouldn't have to go to prison. A court said, no, tough, tough cookies. You got to go to prison. Uh, this is because of his 2015 conviction as an accessory to murder. So 96 years old, he's going to jail. Yeah. Works for me. Well, I don't feel sorry for him. Not at all. And for the first time, scientists have reported that they have figured out a way to successfully edit the DNA in human embryos. The dean of the Harvard Medical School took a look and said that it's pretty exciting science. Essentially, you can edit these embryos without introducing harmful mutations. So if you see an embryo that looks like it might have a genetic defect, they could go in there and fix it. Really? Yeah. That's what the edit means. Yeah. All right. On your radio, on TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. All right, Donald Trump's message to uh, immigrants today is a new one for the United States. The message is, if you don't already speak English, we don't want you here. Stay away. And if you don't already have a college degree and uh, you don't already make a lot of money, stay away. We don't want you here. Turning immigration upside down with this new legislation that uh, Donald Trump uh, supported yesterday. Hello, everybody. It is the Bill Press Show on a Thursday, August 3rd. 
Great to see you today, and thank you for joining us as we boom out to you on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, on Free Speech TV, and also out in the Chicago area. Great to join you on WCPT. Matt Gertz joins us, Senior Fellow at Media Matters for America, with so many uh, media, so much media news, news about the media, media-making news. It's hard to keep up with. Hi, Matt. Great to see you. Hey, great to be here. Thank you so much uh, for coming in. Um, we're sorry that, um, you know, we know that you probably hired 100 new people just to track uh, Anthony Scaramucci, and he only lasted 10 days. It was brief but memorable. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to sum it up. Yeah, right. And there's word today that we haven't heard the last of him. Uh, that he is teaming up with Bill Shine, who was fired from Fox News, to do some kind of, what is it, a podcast that he's doing now? Uh, he's going to speak directly he's to going the to speak, yeah, he's going to He will be hosting an online event on Friday where he will address the American people directly. Scaramucci said this daytime event will be broadcast on various live platforms with help from former Fox News co-president Bill Shine will give him the opportunity to reach and communicate with the president's base. That's from CNN this morning. So God but not forgotten, I guess. Um, you know, he has uh, some pretty close ties to a, a big chunk of that presidential base. They were really excited when he got hired. They were really mad when he got fired. Uh, and so this is a way for... Um, you know, because he's still loyal to the Trump administration to try to keep that base uh, in the president's camp. Is it interesting that um, it was a week ago tomorrow, right, his vulgar rant against uh, Reince Priebus that ended up getting him fired, uh, but Donald Trump never said one word about it? I mean, what, what, I, I think that... Um, I never condemned it, never said this is not the kind of language we want around the White House or we would tolerate around the White House. Well, I mean, no, no, because this is Donald Trump loves this stuff. The man likes drama. Um, you know, he does not seem to have a huge problem with his aides beating up on each other because he spends a good amount of his time beating up on those aides in public, too. Uh, and so, you know, you had uh, Sarah Sanders saying that the president was like disappointed with the language uh, that he used, which is, of course, that's ridiculous. I mean, this is Donald yeah. Trump. This is the man whose, uh, you know, uh, various comments about uh, the women that he apparently enjoys sexually assaulting could not be played on some networks. Uh, he is not someone who has a problem with uh, salty language. He's been well, known. Yes. Yeah, right. That's true. That's true. He has been known to utter uh, an occasional vulgarity himself, right? Yeah. From time and to brag time, about sure. it. Yeah. Uh, which is fine. I mean, Scaramucci uh, is Donald Trump, isn't he? Yeah. I, de- He's a mini Trump. The, the, best, the, the best description I've heard of Anthony Scaramucci is uh, he's the person who, when Donald Trump looks in the mirror, he wishes he would see. Mm. Um, you know, it, mm. just as vulgar, just as brash, somewhat better at speaking in complete sentences, um, a little bit younger. Uh, you know, he, he's got that sort of hard charging uh, New York financier background that Donald Trump has always admired. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, you know, similar in that they came from a little bit outside of the uh, glitz of the Manhattan limelight and always wanted to be a part of that scene and did everything they could to get there. Um, Scaramucci was always much, much better at that process of um you know, sucking up to the powers that be, his SALT conferences uh, for years, 
uh, attracted a wide range of uh, political and media elites. I think Joe Biden spoke at the most recent one. Um, so he he finds a, he found a way to put himself at the center of that world um, in a way that Donald Trump never really pulled off. So so what you're saying is. We haven't seen the end of Scaramucci. No, I don't think so. Um, he, you know, he, he I, th- I think most recently he, he was talking about uh, how he wanted to basically set up some sort of political operation in support of the president. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, the president's ability to surround himself with that sort of grifting operation has always been quite impressive. So basically what we'll end up with is um, a richer uh, uh, Corey Lewandowski. Yeah. Um, There's a lawsuit filed this week uh, by a uh, a detective by the name of Rod Wheeler who claims that the White House and Fox News uh, were working together to try to spread the story that uh, Seth Rich, young uh, staffer for the DNC, uh, who was murdered here in the District of Columbia, uh, was actually not murdered. He was uh, assassinated. His, uh, His murder was ordered by the Clinton operation because he was leaking emails to WikiLeaks, uh, which um, is a disgusting bit of fake news they were trying to spread. But um, what do we know about efforts or contacts between the White House and Fox News on this issue? Yeah, so uh, this lawsuit was one of those that just knock your eyes out of your sockets. Uh, you know, reading through uh, the lawsuit when it when it came out, you know, just. You go through it, and it, it really has everything. It has Republican political operatives. It has Fox News. It has, uh, you know, the White House itself, um, and it's built uh, on a set of emails and text messages that uh, Rod and uh, taped conversations that Rod Wheeler uh, has. Uh, and you know, I, I don't know how far because I wa- he was himself a Fox News. He was a Fox frequent News guest, con- or was he a contributor? He's a Fox News contributor, contributor. Um, who, who was taken to the White House by this guy Butowski. Yes, yeah, so Ed Butowski is a uh, Dallas businessman. He's a longtime uh, conservative uh, commentator, um, a big supporter of the president. Uh, he goes on. He is not a Fox News contributor, but someone who has been on Fox News and Fox Business fairly frequently. He's written for Breitbart. He's appeared. Uh, on uh, Steve Bannon's radio show. Back oh, he's got all the right media yeah. credentials. Yes, he's, he's got yeah. all the right credentials. Um, and he, for you know, to hear him speak, he is someone who uh, just sort of finds these stories uh, and blows them up into the conservative media with as few fingerprints as possible. Uh, and I think from this lawsuit, we get a good sense of how the sausage is made around this sort of thing. So Butowski hires Wheeler to uh, back in, I think, February to look into the uh, Seth Rich murder. Seth Rich uh, was a former Democratic staffer, uh, mm-hmm. murdered in uh, June of last year. Uh, this immediately uh, created a wide range of uh, conspiracy theories, um, and uh, those sort of spiraled through uh, until um, until Butaski got a hold of them. Uh, and so... Uh, basically, Butowski and Wheeler are working with uh, a Fox News reporter uh, named Malia Zimmerman. Um, and uh, what we see with this lawsuit is that Butowski appears to be working with the White House as well. 
uh, in April, according to um, according to the lawsuit, Butaski and Wheeler uh, go to uh, the White House. They meet with Sean Spicer to brief him on this. Spicer has confirmed that this happened. Yeah. Um, and says that he took the meeting without knowing what it was about, which is the second time we've seen a high-ranking Trump official claim that they just take meetings <laughs> without knowing who's going to be there or what they're what, what what's going on. Uh, you know, this is the same story with that Jared Kushner told about the, the meeting with Donald, Russian operatives right. uh, during back uh, during the uh, during the campaign. Um, I don't know how plausible it is that these people just meet with whoever. Uh, but so he briefed, they briefed Spicer on this. Um, uh, they don't have much of a story at the time. Uh, a couple of weeks later, um, uh, Trump fires James Comey. Uh, the mm. day after that happens, uh, Wheeler says that Butaski and uh, Zimmerman, the Fox News reporter, came to him and said that they had uh, a source at the FBI saying that uh, Seth Rich had been in contact with WikiLeaks. The conspiracy around this was always that uh, mm, Rich yeah. had somehow leaked the uh, the DNC emails to WikiLeaks rather than having them uh, be stolen Hacked by, by Russian Russia. hackers. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the story sort of uh, spirals on from there. Um, you know, the uh, Butowski tells Wheeler in uh, text messages and, and recorded voicemails uh, that Wheeler has uh, that the White House is extremely interested in the story, that the president has read the first draft of the story uh, and really wants it to be out there. Um, you know, and, and th that this is one of those cases where, you know, we've got Butowski making this claim to Wheeler based on we don't really know. Um, this is a case, I think, that calls but out for more reporting and, and perhaps congressional investigation to determine what exactly is going on there. But Fox, so Fox and Friends runs with the story and then later they retracted the story. Yeah, Fox and Friends runs with the story. Hannity, Sean Hannity runs with it for three or four nights in a row. He's really the central force on Fox News pushing the story day in and day out. I mean, he had dabbled with it mm -hmm. uh, back last year, but he really takes it on and makes it his own uh, because, uh, and this is a point that Butowski makes in his emails, uh, the, the idea is that if Seth Rich... Uh, provided the emails to WikiLeaks, then the entire Russia collusion Russia. story is nothing. Right. Um, it's all it's all been created by the media, which is the story that Sean Hannity desperately wants to tell. Right. And Hannity finally backed off when Seth Rich's parents, as I recall, or his family, got to him and just said, "Please, you know, a little decency." That and apparently uh, he had a long conversation with several of his lawyers, who presumably told him that he would be in a lot of trouble if he kept pushing this thing. But he was pushing the story after. I mean, Fox News retracted their original story, right? Uh, they and Wheeler claims that part of the reason they did that was because the story had fabricated quotes from him. Um, I don't know how true that is. Uh, obviously, it's a huge ethical disaster for Fox News if that is the case. Uh, but certainly, like, the story's central claims were garbage uh, and imme mm -hmm. immediately disproven. And so Fox had to pull the story. Sean Hannity's never pulled the story. He's never apologized for anything that he's done. Um, he, he just kind of walked away sort of, from it. Yeah, he sort of walked away from it. Right. Uh, it really is. I mean, the whole thing disgusting. is just so grotesque. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just so grotesque. And, like, you know, I remember the days of when Bill Clinton was president and there were these stories flying around that the Clintons had Vince Foster murdered, which are, which are insane, which are completely insane. And it's just like we really haven't gotten much better than that. 
in the media, you know? This is cut from the same cloth. Same exact cloth. I mean, we haven't really gone much further. It's the same crap. I'd actually say that this might be worse. I don't disagree with that, by the way. I mean, I don't disagree. Yeah, I mean, for for two reasons. One, I mean, at least Vince Foster was a a public official, right? You could make... Yeah. He, he, to some extent, I I mean... it's still it's, a quantum yeah, leap, but he's in that circle. He's in that circle. I know what you mean. Yeah. Seth Rich is like literally, like literally no one had ever heard of him. <laughs> right. Uh, outside of, I, you know, the grieving members of his family and his circle of friends uh, before this happened. And the second part is, uh, you know, from what I understand of the Vince Foster scandal, like it, it, the, the conspiracy theories were aimed at damaging the president's administration, yeah. but sort of. In a, in a much more vague way, whereas this is deliberate effort to push back against the notion that the Russian government tried to interfere with our elections yeah. and succeeded. Yeah. yeah, right. So yesterday, Matt Gertz is with us from Media Matters for America, mediamatters.org, our media watchdog on the left doing such an incredible job for, um, what, 11, 12 years now? Uh, I think it's... What is it? What year is this? Thirteen years. Thirteen. Yeah. All right. Thirteen years now. So in our time together, we have never seen a White House briefing like we saw yesterday, where Stephen Miller, on behalf of the president, comes out to uh, to, to brief reporters on what this new immigration policy of the uh, that Donald Trump supported yesterday uh, is all about, and then he uh, decides he will take questions. Uh, and he basically turns it into uh, an attack on all of his favorite members of the media, starting with uh, Glenn Thrush. So the essence here, he says, is that we want people, we want to change immigration policy so that the people, we're only going to give green cards from now on to people who already speak English, already have some kind of skills or a college degree, and make a lot of money. We don't want any low-wage people coming in. Glenn Thrush asked this question, can you back that fact up that this is a threat to American workers, meaning having low-wage people coming in, this is a threat to American workers. What studies do you have to support that? Um, Stephen Miller getting personal with Glenn Thrush. I asked you for a statistic. Can you tell Glenn, me how many... The, how maybe many... we'll make a carve-out in the bill yeah. that says the New York Times can hire all the low-skilled, less-paid workers they want from other countries and see how you feel then about low-wage substitution. Yeah, that's how he answers uh, so answers the question, and then Jim Acosta from CNN makes the point that uh, you know what the Statue of Liberty is all about, right? Is not necessarily that we demand that people speak English before they get here. Steve Miller is shocked. He's actually shocked by such a statement. The Statue of Liberty says, "Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free." Doesn't say anything about speaking English or being able to. Uh, be a computer programmer. Uh, aren't you trying to change what it means to be an immigrant coming into this country if, if you're telling them uh, you have to speak English? Uh, can't people learn how to speak English when they get here? Well, first of all, right now, it's a requirement that to be naturalized, you have to speak English. So the notion that which, speaking English wouldn't be a part of our immigration systems would be actually very ahistorical. Which is not... Jim's point at all. He's not talking about the naturalization service that comes five years later after you get here, right? Well, He's I mean, talk- it's, it's literally actually what Jim Acosta had just said, right? Jim Acosta says, yeah, you why can't it- they learn English when they get here? And, and yeah. uh, you know, Miller comes back with, 
well, the naturalization system requires that you learn. Well, that's, that's exactly what he just said. So that's actually very ahistorical. So then uh, the, the, Miller goes on to say how shocked he is that Jim would suggest that all, every immigrant coming here doesn't already speak English. I am shocked at your statement. Shocked! Did you think that only people from Great Britain and Australia would know English? It's actually, it reveals your cosmopolitan uh, bias to a shocking degree that in your mind, no, this is an amazing, this is an amazing moment. This is an amazing moment that you think only people from Great Britain or Australia would speak English is so insulting to millions of hardworking immigrants who do speak English from all over the world. Jim, have you honestly, Jim, have you honestly never met a immigrant? I'm a peaceful man for most, but like Stephen Miller has a face perfect for slapping, and that whole that whole exchange there is so emblematic of that typical. A- asshole that you're never going to win an argument with because they don't no. argue about the the point. Can and I just uh, flag that he is so such an elitist? <clears throat> Go ahead. Yes, so I up. mean, I mean, cosmopolitan is like literally the exact opposite of the point that Stephen Miller is trying to make right. there. Uh, if if he was if Jim Acosta was incredibly cosmopolitan, he would assume that everybody sp- like that that like people all over the world. Uh, had learned English. Like this, just uh, the, the argument doesn't make any sense. Well, it doesn't. I, I mean, to me, he goes into his personal text because he couldn't defend the policy, yeah. right? Because, of course, you know, the, the, if you New well, York Times and uh, and CNN are the red flags for the Trump bull. And right? I actually think that the Glenn Thresh uh, bit is actually more revealing because Thrush is literally asking for the Facts. data that you yes. are using yes. to make this decision. And Miller comes up. Uh, there's a, an excellent piece by uh, Philip Bump uh, of the Washington Post on this, uh, just sort of analyzing this segment uh, of the discussion. Uh, uh, Miller doesn't name any statistics no, at all no. that supports his position. Uh, he goes on to name one study that was uh, rebutting a different study that had found the exact opposite thing, and it turns out, uh, you know made a lot of assumptions about the workforce in the area it was studying that don't really add up. Um, and that's about it. Then he, he names a couple of other researchers, but no specifics of what they have researched. Um, I mean, that's the point of these briefings, theoretically, is to provide information to the American people. Uh, and that wasn't something that Stephen Miller was prepared to do. He was prepared uh... for political combat and attacking reporters, but not actually providing the facts. And, you um, know, it, 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 a lot of people ask me afterwards that uh, who the hell is he anyhow? I mean, who is, what, what is his real job? Yeah, what is his title? He's advisor to the president or? I mean, so his background is uh, he, worked, he worked for Jeff Sessions. Yeah, I know he worked for uh, Jeff was, Sessions. He was a big part of, uh, you know, his sort of uh, anti-immigrant push. Uh, and so, uh He's you know, Bannon's acolyte, isn't he? Really? Uh, I, I Didn't think he come that, in with Steve Bannon. I think I that's think? The, or, or they're closely associated. I don't, yeah. I'm not sure. I'd say acolyte exactly, but certainly they they run in the same circles. Have a lot of Darth the same Vader Junior or something. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, and so uh, you know this this is his big opportunity to bring the sort of uh, rhetoric uh, that was previously pushed way out on the fringes of the Republican Party and, and make it policy. You know what he was doing? I mean, I think, really. He was playing for Donald Trump. He knew yeah. that Donald Trump was watching, right? Th- that's what just... those press previews have become. 
Yeah, yeah. right. It's just an audience of one. Which I was going to. So, what is your take on the whole uh, attitude and this ongoing war? It's really what it is uh, on the part of Donald Trump and those around him and the media. So, I think you have to start with the reality that Donald Trump basically lies more than any politician that we've seen in recent memory about basically everything. Uh, up including, to including phone calls, including phone calls from the Boy Scouts. I mean, when the Boy Scouts are saying the president said he talked to our leaders about this and we said he was great and that didn't actually happen. That's not a good sign. Uh, he lies about everything on, on big things, on small things. Uh, you know, he builds policy positions around these lies, like the one about the three to five million illegal votes that uh, were the real reason he didn't win the popular vote. Um, you know, that that becomes that becomes policy. Uh, and in order to defend those indefensible positions, uh, the uh, president's press aides need to lie all the time, too. So you've got, you know, Sean Spicer and and uh, Sarah Sanders going out there and saying things that are like obviously comically false because they have to in order to defend the president. I mean, they could, of course, get quit at any time. They don't. They don't have to do this, but they, yeah, they've decided right. they want to yeah. stick it out, and so this this is what they do. Uh, and you know, when when that's what you're uh, sort of uh, when that's the sort of foundation that your administration is resting on, you need to take out the independent sources of information that disprove everything that you're saying. So the press have to be a huge target almost immediately because their job is to point out when the president is not telling the truth. Uh, you know, when uh, organizations like the CBO were producing analyses that disprove the central contentions of, of the Trump economic or health plan, they need to be, uh, you know, damaged as well. They need to be, you know, this is this is the administration playing to their base and trying to hold them in by, uh, you know, basically discrediting all other sources of information. I think that that's one part of uh, that's the sort of logical part of mm -hmm. what's happening. The, the sort of illogical part is Donald Trump really doesn't like it when people say mean things about him. Mm -hmm. uh, and the press says a lot of mean things about him. And he becomes irrational about it and lashes out on a, on a fairly constant, personalized basis. Matt, I'm glad you mentioned that because Donald Trump is tweeting this morning. Uh, yeah, oh, my. He is tweeting this morning. What, what, I, um, th these aren't crazy, crazy tweets, but it does it does get to your point. He tweeted about the stock market. Trying to take credit for all of that. But then his most recent tweet, he says, Our relationship with Russia is at an all-time and very dangerous low. You can thank Congress, the same people that can't even give us H-care. All right. So that is what the president just tweeted about 10 minutes ago. All right. So uh, attack Republicans in Congress. Yep. Why not? Lashing Sounds like John Kelly's doing a great job. Yeah. <laughs> John Kelly's really bringing him in. The pivot the is the working, pivot is, everyone. This is, yeah, this this is, is the time. This, this time it happened. <laughs> well, uh, and he says, relations are at an all-time low. This is the man who just what, two weeks ago sat there with Vladimir Putin in, uh, at the G20 and said, we're great friends and everything's going to be just, just fine. And uh, we had a great meeting. And then they had another meeting that later that night, right? Because they say, buddy, buddy, just like he had a great meeting with the head of the president of China, ate, ate their chocolate cake together. If we just did the things that Putin says, our relationship with Russia would be much better. Yeah. That's just that. That's and that's what fact. that's what Donald Trump wants. Apparently. And the Senate Republicans said, uh, we're not going to play that game anymore. Yeah. Incredible. Um, so uh, just one final question about Sarah Sanders. I mean, 
You're, uh, she's been there just a little over a week. On her own, but before that, she was doing several briefings. Your uh, report card, quick report card on Sarah Sanders as press secretary. I mean, I, you know, I, I think you got to give her an F for what the job is supposed to be and an A for what she's made the job, right? Like the, the point of the briefing is to give information to the American people, to give information to the press, to answer the questions. She doesn't answer any of the questions. She says that she hasn't talked to the president about basically anything that reporters ask about. She has apparently talked to the president about the letter from the 10-year-old. You know, she's not going to give you basically anything that reporters need to do their jobs but she'll, you know, do what the president wants out of these briefings, which uh, is lash out at the press on, on a regular uh, as basis. As a member of the White House press corps, I would uh, uh, second your motion that if you, um, if you're rating her as a smart ass, sarcastic uh, person who never answers one single question and tells all kinds of lies, Sarah Sanders <laughs> is your is your Nailed person. It. She's that's her. Give her an A plus. She tried to get one of those uh, ten minute meetings with no uh, with with no explanation of what it's about, and you, you can tell her about that. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> All right. Hey Matt, thank you for what you do, and thanks for coming in today. Matt Gertz at Media Matters. All your friends over at Media Matters, say hello for us at MediaMatters.org. Back to the political situation of today with Elena Schneider from Politico. Coming up next here on this Thursday edition of the Bill Press Show. No, this is an amazing, this is an amazing moment. This is an amazing moment. Get social with Bill Press. Like us at Facebook.com slash Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. All right, on this Thursday, August 3rd, hello, hello, everybody. Great to see you today, and good to have you with us with The Bill Press Show. Live coast to coast from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., where everything is uh, political, political, politics is the coin of the realm here in Washington, everything uh, that's done, uh, has a political edge to it, and the campaigns never, never really go away. Elena Schneider, that's her beat, a campaign reporter for Politico, uh, here in studio with us. So good to see you again, Elena. Good to Thank see you, you too. Also, all these um, special uh, congressional elections um, for uh, 2017 are behind us, so there's really uh, no politics large. to write about. Huh? <laughs> Certainly always plenty of politics to write about, um, even in 2017. We've got, still got a Utah primary to re- replace uh, Chaffetz, uh, but that seems unlikely that that'll be competitive. So one more special special election. Why? Um, I, as much as I live and breathe this stuff, I haven't even heard about that one. Uh, <laughs> is there a Democrat running? Um, you know what? To be honest, it's been a while since I've checked. So, it, but it, right. at this point, it's over the primary, uh, the Republican primary. But we've got, you know, we've got a Virginia governor's race, a New Jersey governor's race, yeah. so a few things yeah. happening. I have to say, if you're a Democrat in Utah running for the Jason Chavitz seat, I wouldn't spend a lot of my own money. No, right? no. Um, uh, keep hope alive, but at the same time, uh, <laughs> keep a little reality check too, don't you think? Yeah, right. Uh, yes, we do have uh, Virginia, extremely important. New Jersey, extremely important. Uh, and both of both of those coming up, and uh, how do they look? 
it looks like they're both still leaning Democratic at this point. Virginia, um, it we didn't get any surprises out of the primary. We had two super well, intense primaries. Well, Gillespie got a surprise out well, of the primary. Well, in, in the closeness, I should say. Yeah. We didn't get a surprise in the candidates who actually came through. Right. And uh, we're not losing Corey Stewart anytime soon. He's now going to run for Senate, so that'll be fun. Um, <laughs> but they're, uh, that, that one's going to be close. And uh, but it, for both, it seems like it's going to lean Democratic. Uh, Chris Christie can't seem to to help himself um, making headlines and and criticizing his lieutenant governor, who's herself tried to distance herself given how unpopular he is. But <laughs> but nonetheless, he seems to uh, be willing to sort of poke her in the eye, even as he tr- she tries to run for uh, for his uh, his seat. Yeah, I mean, she <laughs> should try and distance herself from him, but like yeah. that's that's not an easy task. But there's right. no way she can. No, no. When you're Chris Christie's lieutenant, lieutenant governor. Governor. Right. Yeah. Right. You can rightfully be tagged with everything that he has done and all of his unpopularity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And she hasn't done it maybe as vigorously as some people would have liked, but uh, but she um, she's doing so. And uh, nonetheless, Phil Murphy, though, the Democrat who's running there, seems pretty likely that he is going to. Do you uh, remember her name? Uh, Kim Guadagno? Guadagno. Guadagno. I think it's Guadagno. Yeah. Guadagno, yeah. 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 I think. Yeah. Because uh, I can remember when I, I didn't want to embarrass <laughs> you, but I was just what, well, I've got to remember that name, Guadano. Uh, and then we come to um, Virginia with Ralph Northam and uh, Ed Gillespie. Right. Virginia, certainly a purple state with a Democratic governor and two Democratic senators, right. uh, but still a Republican legislature. Right. It's really two states, Virginia, these days, right? There's no doubt if it were just Northern Virginia. Um, you know, it'd it be would be north blue, of, yeah. in, in, a, in a second, right? Yeah. Well, I but, mean, it's it's playing out the same urban-rural divide that happens in, in all kinds of cities. I mean, North Carolina is going through this, too, where there is this split between the cities and and uh, the more rural areas of the country, I mean, excuse me, of the state, and it just sort of depends on which one comes out and maintains their, their population edge. Yeah, yesterday uh, we had in studio the mayor of Louisville, Kentucky, mm-hmm. um, Glenn Fisher. I think I got his name right. Who, um, Greg Fisher. Greg, Greg Fisher, Fisher. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, Greg Fisher. Uh, all right, close. Uh, close. At any rate, who used who used the phrase? Uh, we see. He said, "We see this more and more. Blue cities, mm-hmm. red states." Right. Yeah. No, that's happening in all <laughs> kinds of places, um, and certainly in Virginia. That's that's one, and it's also one though that nonetheless, because of the shift to the more urban areas, has been trending bluer for the last several cycles. And I think that's part of the evidence why people believe that Democrats are going to be able to hold on to that one. With, with Northam, who is not from Northern Virginia, right? Northam right. is f- from, from a, the Richmond area, right? I, I believe so. Yeah. Certainly, he's out of the yeah out of the D.C. metropolitan area. You know, and and we always sort of look at the Virginia governor's race too. It's the first sort of electoral test uh, in the off year for presidential uh, for a White House. And um, the the number of people who participated in the Democratic primary was almost double the number number who participated in the Republican primary, and which is just evidence of how strongly Democrats are engaged. That want to vote, they want to make a message in the in the votes that they're taking. So I think that's even stronger evidence. As of now, it's still you know a couple of months out. As of right now, it looks it looks pretty solidly in the. Uh, and of course, we have column. this race because um, Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic governor, cannot run for re-election. Georgia is, uh, I mean, Virginia. One of the few states, if not the only one, where the governor has one term mm-hmm. and cannot run for re-election, which would be um, um, maybe a misfortune for anybody but Terry McAuliffe because he's going to be too busy running for president. Potentially. Right? I mean, at this point, 
we've got congressmen, we've got, we'll probably have a mayor or two, might as well throw in former governors, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to get everybody in that race. Uh, and a few senators. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. So we've talked the last couple of days. We really <laughs> think that for this Democratic primary, it's going to be like the Republican primary in 2016. Yeah. Where there are going to be so many candidates, they won't all fit on the same stage. Right. No, I. We're going to have a. We're going to have Isn't a. Isn't that fun? Kids That's debate. Fun. A yes. toddler debate. <laughs> an infant debate. I mean, it's really we're we're going to cover all of the the life life stages um, to get all these people in there. But I think that I think it, there's an element of you know take Don Delaney, the the first one who has actually made it formally official that he's going to run for president. Wait a minute, you're talking about Peter's congressman. That's my congressman. Oh, That's really? My congressman. Well. How do you uh, feel about him running for president? I think it's a stupid thing to do. But, like, whatever. <laughs> you know? I mean, look. It, so he took uh, all the rules, place, right? Yeah. All the rules. Uh, n- no. He didn't no. take. Oh. He didn't that take was. Um, so this is Maryland yeah. 6th. It, oh, shoot. I can't I know, remember no, the guy's name. This was yes. several cycles ago. But he came in. He was yeah. a, a self-funder. He uh, I, yeah, sort of I, I walked in there right. and yeah. blanketed yeah, but, the But he's part of Montgomery County. Yeah, right. Because you live in Montgomery, right? Montgomery Montgomery County and Frederick County. Right. So, like, all the rules that used to apply to politics, I think we could pretty much just throw out the window. We live in that weird zone now where, like, nothing really makes it. So if, like, a guy like John Delaney wants to put his name out there, whatever. He's got just as much of a shot as anybody else, honestly. I just don't know that he's got anything to point to to say, like, I'm ready to leave the country. Uh, No. That's my point. I mean, if you want to get in, fine, get in. Great, go for it. But, like, what's your record? I can't – I mean, he's my congressman. I can't tell you what he stands for. Uh, he, he, I, I would <laughs> you know? put him in the uh, Lincoln-Chafee category. Sure. That's, that's, I think it's a Although good Lincoln had a lot more experience. He was the United States senator. He was governor. Yeah. And he was a mayor before before that. Yeah. So uh, he had he had some things going for him. But before we get to 2020, 2018 is right on the horizon. That's true. Uh, and uh, we know – um, that the Democrats are are really uh, not not that the Republicans are not active as well, but the Democrats really are, are fighting, are organizing to take back the House and to take back the Senate, one or both, um, and are recruiting uh, a lot of candidates. Right, it's I a mean, bonanza out there. Yeah, um, there are so many candidates. It's hard. It's honestly hard to keep up with at this point. Um, we've got people a who are a flood of candidates. Like Emily's list, have told us they had eleven thousand people sign mm-hmm. up, women, right, sign up after the march on Washington mm-hmm. to run for office. Now, right. some of those city council, state legislature, whatever, but a lot of them members for congressional seats. Right. Well, at this point, people feel as if they're they're being you know sort of especially those who come from sort of the Obama who were activated by Obama feel like everything is a direct assault on his sort of legacy, and therefore they want to be a part of trying to protect it. And so much of what Obama sort of left office with was sort of this call to action, and people felt compelled to do something about it. And um, and so we've got this enormous number of people who have gotten into races. I mean, I'm thinking about um, Ed Royce in California and in Orange County. I, I don't believe he even had a challenger in that race. Pete Sessions in Texas is the same way. Both those races now have super active Democratic primaries with mm-hmm. not one, not two, three or four different really qualified uh, candidates who are who are hardcore fundraising and who are going to really battle it out. So I think that that's just evidence of sort of this really interesting dynamic too, where you know we've got these really intense uh, Democratic primaries that may mean some of these candidates emerge a little bloody, emerge um, with a little less cash in their bank, 
And um, it may make it a little bit more difficult, but I think at this point the energy is still there that they're going to sort of emerge well, largely unscathed. No, and even the last time around, I mean, I'm thinking, okay, California is my right. territory. I was Democratic chair of California um, uh, 20 years ago. But uh, like Daryl Issa, Daryl right. Issa never had a serious challenge. The last time he almost got knocked off, right? right? I right. mean, it was right it, – it, it took two couple of weeks before they determined who won that race, right. and he barely – won it. Yeah. Uh, and so he's very vulnerable this mm -hmm. year. Dana Rohrbacher, who's been there forever yeah. in Orange County, who really does represent what Orange County used to be, mm -hmm. right, is going to have a serious challenge this, right. this year. And uh, Duncan Hunter in a place that's, Duncan you know, Hunter. leans pretty heavily Republican nonetheless, still has has a candidate who uh, the D-Trip is already starting to support with uh um, well, I shouldn't say the D trip. House leadership, House Democratic leadership, is helping to support already. Um, so yeah, it's it's they're not having any recruitment problems. Let's put it that so way. So who are these people who are coming from? You mentioned uh, Obama supporters, Obama mm -hmm. alumni. So alumni? these are people who worked on his 2008 and 2012 campaigns. They worked in his White House. They worked in his State Department. So um, let's take the Pete Sessions race. We've got. Two people there who were both alum, um, oh, excuse me, Obama alumni. Ed Meyer, who worked in the State Department, um, and uh, Colin Allred, who used to be a uh, NFL linebacker or something. I don't know, actually. Don't yeah. quote me on what position he played, but played in the NFL and um, interned in the White House, and then worked for Castro at HUD. And this is in so a these scene. are people when you say alumni who came out of the administration, not just they were not supporters. Not, oh no, certainly not just supporters. These are former administration officials who can put that on their resume and use that as a way to to lend real credibility to their race because all of these people are first time candidates. Mm. Most of them have never run for office before, and that's a key sort of resume top line to sort of start the fundraising apparatus to convince people that they're credible. And uh, that's really important when you're a first-time candidate because what else do you have to lean on other, other sure. than that? Well, some some of these candidates uh, can lean on um, not so much their political service as their military service. Right. Correct? I mean, we've seen more and more veterans, Iraq and Afghanistan, but some of them already in Congress, right. of course. Well, this is going back uh, to the 2006 sort of Rahm Emanuel playbook of trying to find people who are – not your typical sort of Democrats, not just lawyers, not just activists, but veterans, uh, football coach. You know, I'm thinking of Heath Shuler out in Western North Carolina. Those are the sorts of people that he wanted to recruit. And that's still something that Democrats want to do because it, it, it goes against sort of maybe what people's sort of typical understanding of what the Democratic brand might be. Um, and there are a whole host of veterans who are running. I don't know if you guys saw um, in Kentucky Six, there was a woman who was one of the who was flying um, fighter jets, and I think Amy McGrath, I think was her name. I don't know. Yeah, um, I think that's right. It just came out, and um, in a in a race it's that spectacular. It's, 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 <laughs> it's an extravaganza. <laughs> it's a really it's a re pretty remarkable ad as she talks about how she fought to to be um, you know basically in combat and and fly these fighter jets and was the first woman to do so. Um, and so, I, you know, they're, they're going to keep trying to find those kinds of candidates. There's another woman who um, is in Texas 31 who, and this is this is evidence of how many people are running and how many different bio uh, notes I'm trying to keep in my head, but she's running in Texas 31 and she is uh, was a Marine and they're making a movie about her life and Angelina Jolie, I believe, is going to play her. Whoa, whoa, um, yeah. Another one that you ha might have to double check because was just told me yesterday. Sign, so sign her up, yeah, right. right? Yeah. So that that's the kind of people that they are recruiting and trying to focus on as they, you know. And there's another there's another vet veteran, Dan Helmer, right here in Virginia Ten, right outside of uh, 
in Northern Virginia that's going to try and take on Barbara Comstock. So there are all kinds of, uh, of veterans who are running, and that's sort of a, a key constituency the Democrats feel like they sometimes have a weakness in, and um, and those are the kinds of candidates that they you know they see as dream well, recruits. It, it's it's a population that has historically been a Republican right. Um, right. base, you right. know, or appeal not, not but the, usually the people who've run. From with a military background, starting with Dwight Eisenhower, I've run as Republicans, right. right? And for Democrats, for to put these forward, I'm thinking of the ultimate role model is Tammy Duckworth, mm-hmm. uh, exactly. the new senator from from Illinois. Nobody has a better record, you know, than Tammy does, uh, and um, and serving in Congress and now the United States Senate, and, and, and incredible life story and incredible leader. And right. I'm sure she's inspired, you know, thousands of Without a doubt. people in the military to say, hey, I could think of a political career mm-hmm. uh, as well. That's yeah, and exciting. she came up in Rahm Emanuel's sort of first first effort to recruit those kinds of people. You know, it's the first time in a long time we've heard anybody say anything positive <laughs> about Rahm Emanuel for any reason whatsoever. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he uh, you know, whether fair or not, he, he did some really uh, interesting things back in 2006 that they they, uh, they maybe could learn from. So we'll see if that actually pans out. Elena Snyder is with us from Politico, politico.com. Of course, uh, the political season uh, never, never, never stops. So um, now uh, with Back to John Delaney and uh, well, I guess we just should say the overall the Democratic chances of uh, just buttoning this up of uh, taking back the House. Well, the D trip has already so the D trip the the committee which is responsible for electing these people their which chairman D triple C you hear that a lot on the show D trip D trip uh, <laughs> Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee D triple C or D trip. Yes. Um, so their chairman, Ben Ray Lujan, has already sort of declared that the House, um, that they're going to take back the House, that the House is in play. Um, there's an said, element they of... They have said that every two years for the last... Well, <laughs> there is an, also an element of uh, of uh, PR in that because he announced it the day after they lost uh, the Georgia special election, um, the most expensive loss in uh, House history. So i uh certain that they're, they were trying to turn the page on that um, loss. But I... I Look, I think that the House is a lot more um, has a lot more volatility and a lot more possibility to flip than than even arguably the Senate at this point. I'm not saying that both are not possible, but um, but given sort of the way that the House changes according to the uh, popularity of the president, that means that all of the evidence that we have so far stacking up, the conventional wisdom stacking up so far, would suggest that there is um, a strong possibility that they could retake the House. Then again, uh, conventional wisdom um, is apparently a moot point occasionally, you know, in, in this point yeah. in our in our politics. So uh, they've got to put good candidates in. They've got to um, have a message that says more than just we're against Donald Trump, which they're still sort of struggling to figure out. Uh, they're very sort of awkward uh, rollout of the economic message that was totally lost in the news coverage because Jared Kushner came out at the same time, which was maybe a bad calculus on their part. They're clearly still uh, stumbling the, along. The, you're occasionally. talking about the release of the Better Deal, right? Last exactly week in Berryville, Virginia, right? Uh, just outside of Washington, or right? About Sixty miles outside of Washington. But so there's there's still they've still got a lot to do. There is nothing guaranteed, and and uh, Republicans certainly are are going to do everything they can to prevent that from happening. But the historical uh, evidence is mounting that they could they could do it. So uh, Congressman uh, Ben Ray Luhan also said last week that in 
recruiting candidates mm-hmm. for offices for for the House nationwide, that the Democratic Party is no longer going to have a, an absolute litmus test on the issue of abortion. Right. In other words, they will include in their ranks um, pro-life, pro-life Democrats. I right. guess I hate that phrase, pro-life, but at any rate. Uh, is this a, um, does this mean the Democratic Party is uh, going to change its platform and no longer be the pro-choice party? I don't think that this necessary. I mean, you saw that there was an intense backlash to what uh, the chairman said. Uh, NARAL, Emily's List, all kinds of women's groups, all kinds of candidates actually came out and were critical of his uh, is his position. And I, I, whether or not this is going to become a, a part of the party, I highly doubt. I think at this point, the voices um, who are pro-choice or anti, you know, anti limiting abortion rights are going to be the much stronger force in the Democratic Party. But I think it's his attempt to try and make this a slightly bigger tent and reach into districts, uh, especially in working class, uh, more rural districts where they might not have necessarily an easy foothold. But, on a, you know, by opening up this position that maybe they could get a candidate in there that who who could win. Yeah, it's a tough uh, it's a tough call on his part. Uh, I don't mean to be too critical of it, but look, I'm, you know, unapologetically pro-choice. And, and always have been. And that's what the Democratic Party is, one of the reasons I'm a Democrat. Um, at the same time, you know, uh, I'd rather in some districts, particularly in a red district, in a red state, if there's a, a Democrat there who could win and be a Democrat and a vote for Democratic leadership and, and, and a good vote on every other progressive issue but happens to be pro-life, I'd rather have that person than a Republican representing right. a district. I say that as a Democrat, Right. And I think that's kind of what Ben Lujan was saying. We're not right. going to definitely just uh, uh, never, never, never even consider supporting any Democrat who happened to be, for whatever reason. Well, and we're forgetting, too, that there are senators who are pro-life who are Democrats. Look at yeah. Bob Casey. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Uh, or well, Tim Kaine, yeah. who was vice presidential nominee. So right. exactly. it's one thing I'm saying you can be a little tolerant of that position inside the pro-choice Democratic Party, as opposed to what it seemed like he was saying is, from now on, we don't care whether right. you're pro-choice or pro-life. That's not for the Democratic Party. And neither one of the people that we mentioned, Tim Kaine or Bob Casey, have gone to the mat to try and overturn no, Roe v. Wade. No, uh, right? they're like, not zealots. Right. No. There's a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's where the chairman got in a little off. Right. Yeah. Overstepped there, perhaps. Uh, all right. Whoa. Wow. Look at the time here. So now 2020, <laughs> right? Uh, but, but what's interesting is... There are already some people who are <clears throat> heading their way, buying airline tickets to Iowa. That's right. So uh, not only do I have people like Amy Klobuchar, who's already got plans to go out there, Bernie Sanders has plans to go back out I, there I, again. He's been there, yeah. So We're going to have a few House members, um, which is very exciting um, for those of us who cover the House. <laughs> and um, we've got Massachusetts uh, Congressman Seth Moulton, who has gotten in some trouble by tangling with uh, and being pretty critical of uh, Nancy Pelosi and House leadership. And then Tim actually said we need a new leader. Right, right, exactly. And oh, you know, Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan, who offered to be that other leader, um, and who Seth Moulton supported in his effort to, to be the alternative to Nancy Pelosi, is also going out there to the um, to God, the and we steak thought fry Tim Ryan, who's our friend, we th- uh, 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 we and great guy, we thought Tim Ryan was going to be running for governor of Ohio, and we encouraged him to do so. I think uh, we, we maybe we set our sights too low, Peter. Here, <laughs> maybe right. <laughs> Damn. Uh, um, so he's actually going to be part of that's 
The Tom Harkin steak fry right. is when everybody, uh, all the wannabe. Right. It was Hillary president. Clinton's first appearance in 2014 in yep. Iowa after yep. her 2008 loss. It, it's it's a it's a place that you one must stop. Everyone knows who goes to these places what that means. And so they're not doing it by accident. They're certainly doing it on purpose. And it's just, you know, once again, showing how intense and and uh, uh, maybe 2016 like the uh, Democratic primary is going to end up being in 2020. If I run for president, it'll just be for the food, right? You get the steak fry. You got Jim Clyburn does the big fish fry. You've got the Iowa State Fair. You can the eat Iowa butter. State Fair, the Minnesota State Fair, you know, that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can do uh, that. And Cory Booker has decided. I think he's also one of the ones clearly who's yep. making his moves. At. I mean, if you start the list of Cory Booker and Kirsten Gillibrand and Amy Klobuchar, and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, I still think Hillary Clinton could be on that list. Hmm. Um, I hope not. God, but I'm sorry, uh, she did form a pack, and you know, and something about having it. In, in their blood that, that some of these politicians never really see right right that the door is finally closed um, uh, when you get when you start down that list uh, so anyhow Cory Booker is on that list he's going to get there uh, by uh, on the pot train right? right putting in legislation this week to make recreational marijuana legal in all 50 states gotta get that millennial vote that's it <laughs> that's it <laughs> the millennial vote and the old hippie vote <laughs> all coming together right it is a fascinating time and uh which uh so yes uh elaine even in this uh um, with all the special elections behind us in 2017 still lots of political still stuff. still lots of politics out there all right <laughs> enjoy enjoy thanks for the thanks. good work that you're doing thanks for having um me. you can follow and i and all of our good friends at politico on politico Dot com, of course. Now that's it for this Thursday, August 3rd. The rest of the day is yours. We hope you make the very most of it. Have a great Thursday, but don't forget, come back tomorrow. Ben Wickler here from MoveOn.org. This is the Bill Press Show.